passage comes from Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He who brings, he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then would you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. Not one is missing. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning and... We ask that you would help us to see your greatness because too often we don't. And Lord, we need uh, to have our sorrows and our fears and our doubts and our worries and our shame and our guilt uh, swallowed up by the greatness of your infinite love. And so Lord, we pray that you would meet us in this place and you would do that, whether that's for the first time ever in our lives or for the millionth time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, at the heyday of the TED Talk craze, uh, there was a TED Talk that created a whole lot of buzz that was by a woman by the name of Karen Thompson. And uh, some of you may remember this. Uh, her talk was titled, What Fear Can Teach Us. And in many ways, there's a lot of great things in this talk. Uh, one of those is that she says, our fears are stories. And they have characters, us. They have plots, like you lose your job, somebody betrays you, you blow it big time. And they have suspense. What will happen next? 
What will happen to me? What will happen to my family? What will happen to my life? And Thompson says, we are the authors of these stories, but we are also the readers of these stories. And the punchline to her whole talk was basically that we need to have what she calls productive paranoia so that we will be prepared if the worst stories come true. Now, what was interesting is, and this was a problem that some quickly pointed out, is that this kind of answer throws us back on our own resources. And it is our own resources which our fears are exposing aren't enough. We are not in control. We don't know the way. And we can't keep ourselves safe. We actually need a story that is bigger than ourselves. And to put it a different way, we need a God who is bigger than our fears. Now, I think if we're honest, everybody in this room, um, you're here for whatever reason. But when you start hearing talk about the greatness of God, that's something that you've probably wrestled with at some point. Is he big enough for what I am facing in my life? Right? Is he big enough for the loss of your spouse? Is he big enough for your desolate marriage? Is he big enough for your struggles with your wayward teenager? Is he big enough for your anxiety and depression? Is he big enough for your loneliness and heartache? Is he big enough for your impossible situation? And Isaiah 40 is actually an answer to that question. Yes, he is. He is big enough. And last week we did the warm up to that, looking at verses 9 through 11, where Isaiah says, Behold your God. And he gives us this beautiful picture of God as both a mighty warrior and a tender shepherd. Well, this week we enter the workout, right? We had the warm up. Now we're in the workout. Isaiah says, I want you to take a good long look at who God is. Now, you've got to remember the background of this. Uh, Assyria, which was a powerful empire in the days uh, that Isaiah was writing, had annihilated the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Absolutely obliterated them. And the southern king Judah, southern kingdom Judah had been spared, but they had made a deal with the Babylonians to try to hedge the threat of Assyria. And that's kind of like inviting the fox into the hen house. And God had told them darker days are ahead. Their city and their temple would be destroyed They'd be taken into captivity and carried away to live in the Babylonian empire. And basically Isaiah 1 through 39 is full of judgment oracles. And then when we come to chapter 40, which we've been looking at now for the third week, the tone changes and we hear comfort, comfort my people. That's how chapter 40 verse 1 began. And we can only imagine how demoralized and discouraged these people were. And God is speaking to people in the future who are going to experience these things. And they must have been asking, has God failed us? Did he not deliver on his promise? Is he weaker than the gods of Babylon? Is he not big enough for what we are facing? And one of the reasons that they were asking those questions was there were many who had been saying, the city will never fall. God will protect it. You're good, you're good, you're good. But others, like the prophet Jeremiah, has said, no, 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 no. God had warned us 
Go back to the book of Deuteronomy. He had told you, he hasn't failed you. He's actually done what he's promised. He said, these will be the consequences of violating the covenant that I have made with you. But God always promised that he would undo his people's sin. That he would work to roll it back and to reverse it. And now in Isaiah 40, God is coming on the scene and he says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to bring you home. Now, here's the big problem. Israel knew, and we know, nations don't come home from exile. In fact, as far as we can tell from the historical record, that had never happened before. And it's barely happened since. It seems like an impossible, impossible situation. And so this is a huge claim that's being made. You could understand how Israel might have had trouble believing it. But they were called to wait on God's deliverance. And as they waited, they were tempted to waver in their confidence in what God had promised to do. And as we wait here in our moment for the return of Jesus and the making good of all his promises, we often waver as well. Think about that word for a second. What does it mean to waver? It means to become unsteady. To vacillate between choices. To fluctuate in opinion or allegiance or direction. And it's happening because of the pressures of the situation that you find yourself in. And maybe, maybe you're saying something like this right now in your life. You're saying maybe Christianity doesn't really work. Or how can I continue to trust a God who would let that happen to me? Those are honest questions and the Bible is filled with people who verbalized them. Half of the Psalms sound like that. When life is in ruins, when you're demoralized by suffering, you're disheartened and discouraged, you waver. You waver. But here's what's happening in Isaiah 40. The prophet Isaiah is entering into an argument with wavering hearts. In verses 12 through 26, which we just heard read, it's a series of rhetorical questions that are all aimed at one thing magnifying the greatness of God. Because what you and I need more than resolve or discipline or focus or positive thinking is to see the greatness of God. We need our hearts overwhelmed by his greatness. And what Isaiah does is he, he takes us to, through a series of breathtaking pictures of God's greatness, something they ought to have known but so easily forget. Something we ought to know, but so easily forget and need to be told again. Because the danger behind the dangers is forgetting who God is. But when we remember, we find three things that happen in our hearts. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The greatness of God humbles us. It exposes us. And it also sustains us. So I want to talk about that looking at these verses together. So let's start first with how the greatness of God humbles us. Now, I, I want to run through this just kind of quickly, the series of rhetorical questions that we get from verses 12 through six, uh, 16. Because they're, they're meant to land on you in this cascading kind of fashion. Who is able to measure the heavens and the earth? No one but the Lord. Who has ever been his counselor? Not one. Not a single one, just as he is unrivaled as the creator of heaven and earth, 
He's unrivaled in the wisdom needed for the work. Who's able to thwart his purposes? Not the nations. They pose no challenge or limitation to him. Who's able to force his hand? That's what verse 16 is about. Somebody offering all the cedars of Lebanon or all the beasts of that country as an offering and making God do what they want. Nope, not even the most devoutly religious were able to control God that way. And what Isaiah is doing is he's pointing us to God and saying, you need to reckon with his greatness. And let's go back to that first series of questions. Who has measured the, the waters in the hollow of his hand? Do you get the image? It's like the oceans. He scoops it up in his palm. Or who has marked off the heavens with a span? Think about the size of the universe. The span of the hand is between your index and thumb, index finger and thumb. It's like he measures it with his fingers. Who has enclosed the dust of earth in a measure? I mean, like scoop it up. All the dust of earth in a single scoop. Or weighed the mountains in scales. Like the Himalayas. God puts them on his scales. Isaiah is saying you need to reckon with this stunning picture of God's greatness. And why? Because one of the reasons we waver is because our view of God is too puny, too trivial, too lame. We minimize him. We treat God like he's a golf caddy that is there to carry our bags and help us choose the right clubs so that we can get the right score. So stroke our way through life to success. And you know what that does? That creates a spirituality that is so thin, it crumbles like a cracker under the weight of suffering. But the greatness of God will steady you. Take a look at creation, Isaiah says. God is like this skilled craftsman. Carefully measuring and balancing and fashioning the universe on his workbench. Now, I don't know, uh, some, of you, some of you in here are like scientific people and you've seen all the, the new pictures and all that stuff that are, that are out there. I, I don't even know how to describe all that. But this, this, this analogy got me. Someone said if the distance between the earth and the sun were like a sheet of paper, that width, then the distance between the earth and the nearest, next nearest star would be like a 75-foot stack of paper. And the distance across the galaxy, which we now can see, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is one of possibly 200 billion galaxies. He measures it with his fingers. See, what Isaiah is doing is trying to get you and I to reckon with a God who made heaven and earth is pretty great, pretty massive, pretty huge. And when we actually reckon with that, it humbles us because we begin to realize we actually don't know as much as we think we know. And that second series of questions that he asks in verse 13 through 14, who did God consult when he made the universe? No one. He didn't attend any workshops. He didn't go to any seminars. He didn't hire an engineering firm to size it up for him and give him the specs. He consulted no consultants. Sorry, Silicon Valley. He had no teachers teach him the path of justice or the way of understanding. God and God alone is the one who made the universe and had all the wisdom needed to do it. 
Uh, some of you may have read years ago that a sh- the, 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 those series of books, the short, you know, this of that or whatever, like the, the dummy stuff. Like I was into that for a while. And there was one that was Bill Bry- Bryson's A Short History of Everything. Anybody remember that? Yeah. And one of the things that Bill Bryson says in there is that 90% of the known universe is utterly invisible to us. It's dark matter. So as much as we think we know about this world, and it turns out we don't know that much. <laughs> we're always learning and discovering we were wrong. We actually don't know much of anything about 90% of the universe. <laughs> That's a humbling thought when you think about it. And this is why this is important. This is why Isaiah is wanting us to reckon with the greatness of God. Because often there is an arrogance in the way that we approach him. We think we know what he's supposed to do. We think we know how he's supposed to do it. And we think we know when he's supposed to get it done. But his greatness, it shatters our arrogance. And it humbles us. Because we don't know as much as we think we do. But it also humbles us in another way. It humbles us because it helps us see how little we are in control. Those are the scary moments for us, aren't they? We realize, I don't got this. I'm not in control here. And in the days of Isaiah, ancient tribes had developed into powerful nations and empires. And they were very impressive and intimidating. They thought they ruled the world and directed history. And you know, the Israelites began to believe the same things. But Isaiah comes and says, God is not awed or intimidated by the nations. Not by Egypt, not by Assyria, not by Babylonia. And guess what? Not by North Korea, not by China, and not by the USA. He says they're like a drop from a bucket to him. Or to say it a little differently, they're like molecules in a Petri dish. They're like dust on a scale. The way we, we would might say today, it's like, it's like lint on your bathroom scale. Compared to the greatness of God. And don't forget this as he rolls on into verse 23 and 24. God's not impressed with the movers and shakers and big decision makers. The princes and rulers and somebodies of this world are blown away as soon as they are sown and planted. And when you look at history. The truth of that is never more apparent. Even in the ones that we remember. We soon forget. The greatness of God is meant to humble us, to remind us we don't know as much as we think we know. And we're not in control like we often think we are. But the greatness of God doesn't just humble us, it also exposes us. And when you look at verses 18 through 20, what is happening is, is Isaiah's engaging in a little bit of ancient satire. This is how it sounds. To whom are you going to liken God? What likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it silver chains, casts for it silver chains. He who's too poor for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And this is what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, if you want to make an idol, if you want to find an alternative for God, you better nail his feet to the mantle or he's going to fall over. It's, it's a bit of mockery. And what Isaiah is engaging is something that's true of your heart and of mine. And that is, try as we may, we cannot escape the inclination to worship something. 
It may not be idols in this form as it was for some people in the ancient world, but we find alternatives to the living God if we don't find him suitable to our immediate needs. For the ancient Israelites, it was the gods of the surrounding nation of ancient Mesopotamia. They imagined that they were more powerful because they seemed to be winning. But for us, it's different. But in the most important ways, the same. Our favorite idols, money, and power, and comfort, and technology. And Isaiah is coming and saying, things your hands have made, that you've put together. And one of the reasons why you're overwhelmed with fear is you feel the fragility and the vulnerability. You feel that they're about to topple over underneath you. Put a little weight on it. Ah, this feels dicey. And what Isaiah wants to do is expose the inadequacy of our idolatry. The Lord made the heavens and the earth like a skilled craftsman. And then we turn and hire a skilled craftsman. I can't say that. Craftsman to manufacture an idol. One creates, the other is created. And this was part of the problem in Israel's history. Is turning from the living God and his greatness to find an alternative that the Bible not only says is, is a betrayal. It's like cheating on God. But it's actually useless. It doesn't hold up. It looks magnificent and beautiful. But be careful to make it balanced or it might topple over. What are we talking about here? This is what we're talking about. In those moments of despair and sorrow, we often find our hearts saying, God, if you won't come to my aid right now, I'm going to go find another God who will. And God says, good luck. If they can't support themselves, how are they going to hold you up? You see, we need to grapple with the greatness of God over against what we run to as an alternative because nothing compares to him. And you know what? One of the things his greatness exposes in us is our idolatrous fixation on what makes us feel good at the moment. And the story of every addict is, I thought this was helping, but it ended up ruining you know what Isaiah 40 is? It's like an intervention. And you know what happens in an intervention? Is you have to say over and over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you, but you need help. You are enslaved to something that is killing you. See, those moments when we say, I want God to make me feel good right now. But I don't want him changing the way I view the world. Isaiah 40 comes and says, but that is exactly what you need. You need the world reimagined in light of his greatness. You need your world reimagined in light of his greatness. God's greatness humbles us because we don't know as much as we think we know. And we're not in control like we, we think we are. And God's greatness exposes us that we run to alternatives that can't bear the weight. But this is the last thing. And it's really the most important thing that Isaiah is trying to convey. And actually, God himself speaks up in these verses and takes the first person voice. The greatness of God doesn't just humble us and it doesn't just expose us. It actually sustains us. 
You see, as this passage rounds to a close, and there's more verses later, but God says, lift up your eyes on and see. Look up at the stars of heaven. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name? God knows the name of every star. In fact, he knows every item in his creation by name. How could he ever forget his people? He holds the stars in the universe together. You think he can't hold you? That's what Isaiah is trying to convey. Knowing this, this great God has your number. Knows your name. You know what that does? It puts steel in your spine. It steadies you in the wavering. It holds you together until the day that we can be fully mended. But you know, there's more here. Because this language of looking up and see, this is actually a gesture back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. That Isaiah wants us to make this connection is more obvious if I hadn't stopped the reading this morning at verse 26. But I had to leave something for Ben next week. So, sorry about that. But if you, if, if you read on, he's saying, how could I ever disregard you? How could I ever not see you? You're my people. And I have made promises to you. You go all the way back to Genesis 12, what happens? God takes Abraham out and he says, look up at the stars in the heavens. And he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply your offspring, and through your offspring, I'm going to bless the world, and they will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. See, it's, 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 it's an echo of the promise that God had made. That God is saying, I will never forget my people. I will never forget the promises I've made. I will hold you. I will keep you. I will preserve you. I will work to undo the sin that has come between you and me. All throughout Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, you hear this again and again. Do not fear. I am your God. I am with you. I have redeemed you. Over and over and over again. Why, why does he have to say that over and over again? Because it's an intervention. It's an intervention. And we need to hear it and hear it again until we get the help that we need. You know, Israel did indeed return from exile and went home. But God was just getting warmed up. Because one day, as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, that means when God was ready, when it came to that point in his plan, Paul writes that a son was born, born of a woman, a descendant of Abraham, but unlike any other descendant of Abraham the world had ever seen. Because Paul writes, God sent his son. And why did he send his son? To redeem. And his followers wrote things like this about him. John chapter 1. He calls him the word. In the beginning was what the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And through him all things were made. And by him, nothing was made that has been made except through him. And this word took on flesh and entered into history. Why? To redeem. Or the way Paul writes it in Colossians 1 about Jesus, all things were created through him and for him. And in verse 19 of Colossians 1, in Jesus, we behold the fullness of God. 
The fullness of God's greatness comes to do the work of redemption and reconciliation. That this God is so great, he doesn't just hover in the heavens above looking down, but he actually enters in. Why? Because he made a promise and he will keep it. Even at cost to himself. And it begins in a virgin's womb because God is a specialist in impossible situations. You know, I I was talking with someone this past week and um, someone who's carrying a, a heavy load right now. Not only in her own life, but she's actually bearing the burdens of others. And I, and I just asked, I said, how are you doing? And she said, for the first time in a long time, I'm feeling confident. But not because of some greatness I see in myself. I'm feeling confident because of the greatness that I see in God. You see, that's what the greatness of God does for us. Is it humbles us, it exposes us, and then it sustains us and puts steel in our spine. Because we're like, you are the Lord. You are with us. You will redeem us. You will make things new. That's the essence of who God is. It's, It's called his glory, his weightiness, his worth, his beauty, his character. And the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, created the world, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God, his beauty, his character, his greatness, seen In the face of Jesus Christ. You know there's lots of ways to cultivate confidence in the character of God. In his greatness. You can recount his past deliverances in your life. That's helpful. You can remind yourself of his promises. Yes, yes, yes. You can get around other people who remind you of who he is. Awesome, of course. But the greatest place to cultivate confidence in the character of God. Is seeing his covenant love revealed in Jesus. That's what Advent is all about. You know, I have this, uh, this little thing I've done with all three of my children, and it's taken on a bit of a new iteration with my third. And uh, that is, I'd always whisper to them at night, I love you more. I said, I love you more than you love me. And then they say, no, I love you more. And I say, no, I love you more. And they say, I love you more. And then I pull out, I love you the most. And then I love you the most, and I love you the most. And then my third child said, I love you to infinity. (laughs) I don't know where she hurt. We have a budding physicist on our hands or something. I love you to infinity. It's like checkmate. But then I pulled out Buzz Lightyear. I love you to infinity and beyond. (laughs) And you know what she said? No, dad, there is nothing beyond or greater than infinity. She's six years old. You know what Advent is? It is God saying... I love you to infinity. Bringing all of my greatness of who I am to bear upon your redemption. His greatness is aimed towards the redemption of his people because it is a greatness governed by his infinite love. And you know, you want, you know what this does? It puts steel in your spine. And it holds you together and gives you confidence As we wait for the return of Jesus when all things will be made new. Let's pray. God, forgive us for small thoughts of you. For 
puny and trivial and lame thoughts of you. And we thank you that in your greatness and in your glory, you have set your love and your affection on us and you have worked for our redemption and reconciliation. Lord, would you put steel in our spines that we might be held up and sustained by your greatness in the midst of whatever it is that is crushing us right now. Lord, we need you to act. We need you to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank you for your intervention. And would you ground us and root us in the greatness of who you are and the greatness of your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.